brought to you by SOCOM Athlete, Cindy. Jason Sweet. Thanks for tuning in to SOCOM Athletes Podcast, Send Me. And I'm here with a very special guest tonight, my father, Maurice Sweet, two-time pararescue man. And I say two-time pararescue because my dad actually was a PJ back in the late 80s and early 90s. And then he re-enlisted 19 years later when he was 43 years old to serve as a pararescue man again. And I had the honor of serving with my father at the same team at the same time and even being his roommate for about six months in the pipeline. I'm here with my dad right now. What's going on, dad? How you doing? Thanks for coming on the podcast. I'm so, so honored to be here, Jason. Why did you go into pararescue? Out of all the things that you could have done in your life, there was about 300, 350 pararescue men in the Air Force when you enlisted. How did you find out about it? Why did you choose it? And where were you out in life before that? Well, I didn't really... I didn't really choose pararescue in the sense that most people do nowadays. So when I went into the Air Force, um, I went in in 1984. I didn't know about pararescue at the time I went in. I really just said, you know what, I'm really just stagnant in life and I need to do something with myself. So I'm going to move on and get out of my hometown of Springfield, Ohio and go do something, make something of myself. So I decided to go into the Air Force. And the recruiter says, you know what, since you really don't know what you want to do, how about you just go into open general, which means the Air Force gets to tell you what you want to do. Dad, how old were you when you started talking to the recruiter? Uh, I was 19. 19 years old. Right. And what were you doing before that? Um, so I used to play a lot of racquetball back in the day. So I used to... Racquetball. You got to explain to our listeners what racquetball is, Dad. <laughs> That's right. There's probably not a lot of racquetball. <laughs> racquetball. Nowadays, but so racquetball was really big in the 70s and 80s, and, and I got into it um, through a good friend of mine, Darren Ricketts. And Darren Ricketts served in the Army as an officer for 27 years and was an Army Ranger. And, and he showed me how to play racquetball the first time. So um, we started playing when I was... Uh, maybe in ninth grade and I just really took to it and so I started playing a lot of racquetball um, got to be pretty darn good and, and uh, you know played in state championships in Ohio and and uh, you know traveled a bunch of tournaments and whatnot so I was playing a lot of racquetball and and you know just trying to just struggling trying to figure out what the heck I was supposed to do and how was the money in racquetball Dad? <laughs> what money yeah, so, you know, still living at home, bumming off a mom, single mom, you know, really. You, you had four sisters that you grew up with. I had three with, sisters right? growing three up, sisters. and, you know. I don't even know how many aunts I have. That's yeah, pretty you bad. you got a lot dad. of aunts. Yeah, it's pretty bad. you got a lot of aunts. You got a lot of, a lot of family. Uh, but, yeah, I got three older sisters and my mom, and that's who raised me, and that's all I knew growing up. So um, I just knew that. Being a man, I needed to do something with myself, and I just wasn't doing anything. So I was going nowhere fast. And so why the Air Force, Dad? 
out of all the branches? Well, I felt at the time like the Air Force perhaps was intellectually a little better. And uh, at the time, I wasn't some kind of uh, amazing athletic stud, and I still am not, but... But uh, I, I thought, you know what? You're pretty stubbly, Dad. You got a six-pack. What are you, 50, 53 now? 54. Oh, but, but anyways, that's debatable. It depends on <laughs> how much I've had to eat that day. But I I decided, you know, I, I really want to do something that intellectually challenges me. And I knew the Army and, and the Marine Corps would be physically challenging, but I wanted an intellectual challenge. So right. I thought, you know what? I right. want to go in the Air Force. And uh, obviously the thought of flying and all that was really neat but obviously I wasn't an officer I wasn't going to go in and fly anything um, and I knew that but it sounded cool so I went ahead and I went ahead and um, and went down to her Air Force recruiter and he said yeah you, you know you qualify go go take your you know your MEPS and and whatnot so I did all that and I said okay I'm ready to go and he said well when do you want to leave and I said, as soon as possible. He goes, okay, I can ship you out tomorrow. I said, yeah, mama ain't going to be happy about that. He said he could ship you out tomorrow? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. So he literally had a slot available to fly to San Antonio to basic training the wow. next day. And this was for an open general contract. Open so general. So open general, the Air Force picks your job. So I fly. Uh, so I said, nah, I, said, I don't need, I, I said, you know, I think my mom would die. So I, she didn't know anything about it. So. He says, how about 13 days from now? So I said, okay, I'll go 13 days from now. A little more reasonable, right? <laughs> so a little more reasonable. So I go home telling mom, and, you know, and, and you know, 13, day or 13 days later, I shipped out the basic training. Um, and again, open general. So, um, you know, you, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I just know I'm doing something with myself, right? So that's all I, all I did. So I, I went into the Air Force not... I didn't know anything. I didn't know what para, I didn't know pararescue. I didn't know what pararescue was. I didn't even know it existed. Nobody probably knew what it was. There was guys that that I went into later that I understood. They knew about it, so their recruiter had talked to them about it and whatnot, and and they knew that they wanted to go into pararescue. And what year was this, Dad? Is this like seventy nine? This is nineteen eighty four. Nineteen eighty four is when I went in. So, um. A non, we weren't at war, so it was a time in 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 America where there just wasn't any war. Vietnam ended in the mid seventies, and uh, we didn't get in the Gulf War until nineteen ninety. So, um, you know, it was a time of no war. So, anyways, I went into the Air Force and didn't know what I was going to do, and went to went to basic training. And for those of our listeners out there that don't realize this, at the time, and for those of you that listened to our interview with Isaiah Staley, retired Navy SEAL officer, former PJ and combat rescue officer, you've heard that at the time, students would go to boot camp and they would get the opportunity to watch a video about pararescue and voluntarily go for the job. So I'm assuming that was the same thing for you, right? Dad, you go to basic training and your TI shows you a video about pararescue. Very similar. So I went to basic training, and I think in the first week, we were doing some type of typical basic training event, and they mentioned uh, anyone 
that would be interested in going and seeing a video on pararescue. And all it was was just to go and see a video. And I really just thought of it as, okay, that'd be fun to go do. And I won't have to do some of this other crap that you're having to do in basic training. So let me go watch this video. Now, Dad, sorry to interrupt. At the time, there was not SALT as a career field. And TACP was still there, right? Was TACP existent? In at at that time, at that time, it may have existed, it may not have, but I didn't you know anything about it. So they showed you a video specifically about pararescue, they or was it about pararescue and combat control? No, it was strictly about pararescue. It was strictly about pararescue, and it was a video of of PJs doing PJ stuff. So you found out about pararescue while you're at boot camp. You saw the video. What was your reaction to the video? So in the fourth day, I think it was fourth or fifth day of basic training. I go and see this video and I go and see a video and the video is put on by um, a PJ instructor at what is then the OLJ, which is today's NDOC. And the video and the video is put on by that PJ instructor and his name is Bonagario. Look him up. Uh, the great PJ and a great instructor. Is this a Vietnam era PJ? Um, probably slightly after Vietnam, he may have gotten in there, so I'm not real sure about that, but, uh, nonetheless, great guy. Some bad dudes. He's a bad dude. And, um, he shows me the, he shows us all the video and he says, any of you guys want to go and try out? And, uh. This is the T.I. He said, any of you guys want to try out? No, it wasn't the T.I. It the, was Bonagario, okay. the, the, the PJ instructor. And, uh, so if you raise your hand, you got to go, got a chance to go try out. So I raised my hand. and How many of you guys raised your hand in your basic training? Good question. I, I really don't remember, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that there was probably uh, maybe 20% of the people that watched the video okay. wanted to go. Okay. Now, and when, so that, that was primarily what Pararescue was drawing their candidates from. Yeah. It was just random Air Force basic trainees. Random. I would say maybe 50%. Okay, so 50% of guys that went into Pararescue into the Air Force, they knew about it. But 50% didn't at that time. So you had guys showing up that had never been in a pool before swimming underwater. Yeah. And you had guys that showed up that had actually prepped. Exactly. Both. You had both. Yeah. You had both. So um, I went and tried out. And there was probably 40 guys that tried out. And uh, you had to score 100 on this past test. And I think I scored like 127 or something like that. And it was, you know, it was a run. It was cows and it was a swim. Was it about the same, do you remember, as it is now? 1.5-mile run, 500-meter, 500 500-yard 500 swim, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups for time. I do know this. It was a 1,500-meter swim. So it was a mile swim, basically. So, so when, they th- when they say things were harder, when I went through back in the day, it really was. You had well, to, you had to do triple the distance for your for I can your tell swim. you this. I think that. The, the standards that I had from the time that we did a pass test all the way through the OLJ were really, really tough. And I think that they're probably tougher than what they were now when it comes to just the physical amount of stuff that you had to do then. It's definitely harder than it was than it is now. Well, I got to ask, Dad, as somebody who grew up in Ohio and had little to no experience in the water. I have students that all over the country hosting these hell days or development courses that don't have experience in the water. They can't swim 500 yards without taking a break or resting on the wall. They're completely fatigued. So 
how were students able to go out and complete a 1500 meter swim after having no experience in the water? Was this just straight toughness and resiliency, a harder generation, or, or how, what do you attribute that to? How were they able to do that then, but you don't necessarily see that now? I, I think that um, I think that our society today it does make you a little softer because so many things are just t- you, you take for granted. Um, in in the middle '80s when I went through. There was a toughness that I think um, perhaps each guy that that went that tried out had um, that perhaps is is more so than than the guys that try out now. That's an opinion. That's not a fact, but that's an opinion on on what I've what I've seen and what I've experienced. I wonder if it has something to do with self sufficiency. As somebody that can remember what it was like at 12 or 13 years old with no cell phone where you had to rely on people you had to wait on them you couldn't have information readily at your disposal whether it would be information that would help you train or choose your career field or a simple answer um, that you could find on Google life was a little bit slower it was more challenging when it came to getting information and you couldn't accomplish as much as you could in one day so you would think that students would be more solid because they have more information at their disposal and the ability to prep more, but at the same time, you see kind of a, a fallout of the toughness of students because that self-sufficiency has been lost. What do you what do you think that's due to? Do you think it's technology, or what do you think, Dad? Well, I think that I think that your description is is really accurate. I think that uh, um, today's uh, society. Um, it makes things easier for us in all aspects of our lives. And I think there's a lot of benefit in a lot of ways. When, when it comes to being a warrior, it is not a benefit. You have to fight against that. And, and that is very important to understand, is that our society today makes things so easy on you that you have to fight against that. And you have to push yourself in ways that you perhaps haven't had to push yourself um, because things I think for the most part come pretty easy in our society nowadays we haven't had to deal with the, the physical struggles that past generations have had to deal with we don't have to work the type of of difficult jobs the, the jobs that are extremely demanding physically that we had to do previous that doesn't mean that all people don't have to do that but most of us don't have to do that and back even in the 80s you had to work a lot more you had to work physically a lot more um and uh you don't see that as much uh, as you do as you did down then and you passed that pass test you got invited on to train for pararescue and you graduated basic training your next step was the indoctrination course, which at the time, for those of the view that are listening out there um, that are going for Air Force Special Warfare, you know that the course for selection is called ANS now, and that is assessment and selection. It's combined with pararescue students, combat control students, as well as special reconnaissance students. But at the time, this course was actually called the OLJ that you went through, right, Dad? 
That's right. And, and what what was the difference? Do you, do you know why they called it the OLJ versus NDOC? Was there any differences? I know that for a time the course was combined with combat control and then they separated. What exactly was the difference when you went through? So just like in anything in the military, there's all kinds of different iterations um, of any course or of any career field. And career fields, they, they, they move, they, they change, they mold to what the military needs. So at the time, OLJ meant Operation Location J, and it was just a, it was a, a unit that operated off of other Air Force Training Command units. Um, and I don't profess to know um, all the hierarchy of the Air Force at that time, but we were a small unit that was just a training unit um, at Lackland specifically for pararescue trainees and so all pararescue trainees went to the OLJ at that time and started uh, their their uh, their training and this took place at the very same pararescue schoolhouse that the ANS course is taking place at today they're at Medina Annex it it is in 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 a sense of you know they still use the same swimming pool we had a specific dorm that was a World War II era dorm and we took a lot of pride in that as the pararescue dorm um, and um, it was really uh, a sense of pride to go from basic training over to Medina and get off of that bus and and go to that dorm uh, and, and say you know what I'm a pararescue trainee even though you're just a trainee uh, I felt such a sense of honor you'd earned your right to passage to be able to at least say I was a trainee uh, and when you had other curfields that were training there like security forces and whatnot you stood out when you were a PJ trainee what were some of your memories at the OLJ as far as the darkest times or the toughest times maybe some of the hardest challenges instructors that gave you a harder time than others do you have any memories that stand out in particular yeah, I have a lot of a lot of memories that stick with me, uh, and and they're just they're just great stories that I think every PJ trainee creates. Dad, uh, what was that story about the cockroach and the mask during the <laughs> fin swim? Awesome. That one never left me. What's oh that? Oh my one? gosh, that's awesome! So, uh, great great story. Um, Cause that a, wouldn't fly these days. No, the, the, I, so. When I went in, I, I actually was very, I was very blessed in the sense that I went in two weeks after a class started the OLJ. So the class was, it was an eight-week course at the time, and I got there two weeks in. So I got to basically be in what's called casual status for six weeks before my, my class started. And that six weeks allowed me to train um, and really get comfortable with all the things that that I was going to have to be doing at NDOC. The, the first run I thought I was going to die on. I just couldn't believe how fast I was running for so long. It was amazing. And then we go to the swimming pool and we're training, and I'd never done an underwater. I'd never worked with them. I never had a snorkel and a mask on before. So learning all these things was very critical to do that, but I got six weeks. So I don't think without, I think without the six weeks, I probably wouldn't have made it. So it was just, it was a blessing. Um, and 
probably a divine intervention that it fell like that. Um, when I went in, I got to, when you're in casual status, you count a lot of the tests for the team that's going through the OLJ. And for those of our listeners out there that don't know what casual status is, that is the status that you are on while you are waiting to start a class. So I'm in casual status, and this guy is uh, uh, is training, and one of the instructors comes in, and he's and he's you know he's pissed, and he kind of stayed pissed. He just he just had this irritated uh, attitude and personality all the time, and for whatever reason, he didn't like the guy that was uh, uh, he uh, he wasn't happy with the guy that I was counting for. And uh, there is these big cockroaches in San Antonio, and I swear they're two two inches long. It's ridiculous how big these cockroaches are. And, and they were crawling around. And the they're pool? crawling around the pool. Oh, and this man. and this dude, this instructor says, "Catch that cockroach." And so this guy that I was counting laps for at the swimming pool, he has to catch catch this cockroach. And then the instructor says, "You put it in your mask," and it was a 3,000 meter swim and he said you, it better be alive when you finish that swim 3,000 meter swim so you're talking about like 40 to 60 minutes in length yeah you're, yeah, you're an cockroach. hour in length and you've got a 2 inch long cockroach crawling in your mask for the entire time and I I think I'd be wa- fighting that instructor after I graduated I watched I watched him put it in his mask, and I watched him every single lap with his cockroach in, oh, in his mask. Oh, man. I, I don't know about that. I don't know if you could top that story. What other stories you got, Dad? What, what about Art the Dark Shark? <laughs> well, Art Morrison was a great instructor, but uh, I, I I did not get a chance to, to be with Art, Art Morrison. He was uh, an instructor right before me, so... Um, wonderful guy in the water, but we did a lot of uh, a lot of things that are not allowed to be done now. One of the things that we did was crossovers, and crossovers consisted of putting what's called pony tanks on your back. Um, they're small. They're small tanks that um, that you use for um, scuba uh, for for scuba jumps. At in the time, they don't do. That. I don't think they use them anymore. But uh, you fill these tanks about half full of water. And um, and you go in the deep end of the pool, and you basically start on one side, and you and you let go, and you sink to the bottom, and you um, and you crawl across the bottom to the other side, and uh, those are crossovers, and you did you did eight of those, and you had a fifteen second break, and needless to say, they were just brutal. Uh, it, it was such an incredible task to try to perform and and it was mostly mental because you had to control your breathing you had to be so mentally squared away that you would not freak out and guys i'd say that 80 percent of these of our guys that that dropped out dropped out in crossovers it's pretty wild to think that most of the guys that dropped out in your class dropped out in an exercise that's no longer there so you guys handled your underwaters, you handled the buddy breathing, all of that, but the crossovers were really that impending doom that you had to deal with every day. Cross uh, underwaters were our first event in the in the pool most yeah. days. 
um, they were a walk in the park. And, and I'm not saying that to, to try to be posed for or whatnot. They really were. They were a walk in the park. Um, they weren't they weren't timed like a lot of guys, you know, have now. And, you know, they, they pull down the time in between each one of them. You know, we had about 30 seconds, uh, 30, 45 seconds in between underwaters. And we went. And, um, you know, and then we didn't do 50s. We did 25s. And we did them. We did eight of them. And that was it. And then you went on to something else. You went on to buddy breathing. Or you went on to Bobby. Or you went on to crossovers. But we spent about two hours in the pool every day, and guys dropped like flies. I started with 77 guys in my class, and eight, eight weeks later, we had 15. Um, of those 15 guys, 11 of us graduated uh, PJ school in my class. Uh, the couple guys got set back, and they still made it, but um, 11 of us graduated. And I remember going through the indoctrination course in 2009 and seeing your plaque up on the wall. And you guys, your plaque was bad to the bone, right? And that was like a George Thorogood at the sign. It was. It was bad to the bone. Yeah. George, George Girl Thorogood. George, George Thorogood. That was a George big, Thorogood song. Great it was real song. Real popular at the time when you were going through. Great that. song, and uh, and still, I think one of the unique plaques in the in the pararescue indoctrination course is just amazing. Uh, you go back and you look at all these great plaques and all these great concepts and themes and whatnot, but. Bad to the bone still sticks out to me. For those of you students that are going to be going to the A&S course and you have opportunity to look at those walls and see some of the plaques, look for the plaque that uh, is a big white bone. And I, what did you graduate? Was that 89 or 88? It was 8501. 8501. 8501. Right. 8501. And I was balls two of 09. And we got a big wrench on our, on our plaque. So look for the wrench and look for the bone. You'll find the sweets. That's right. So moving on, Dad, you got any other good stories from OLJ that stand out or, or anything like that? You know, for me, crossovers were the big were the big issue. Uh, it, they they blew my mind, and we started them in about week four, and they just got progressively worse in week eight, all the way up to week eight, week six. I just remember going, man, I just don't see how I'm going to be able to figure this out. So we would go over on on the weekends, and we'd work on this stuff. And one of my teammates, and this is very critical, I want people to know this, is one of my teammates told me, he said, hey, when you get to the other side, you need to blow out at the bottom and you need to, you need to just blow out all your air at the bottom and then push off as hard as you can and get to that wall and then I want you to completely control your breathing. I want you to let yourself breathe hard fast or anything i want you to just control your breathing as soon as you get to the top and i worked on that on one saturday and it was the ticket but the point is it was a teammate so without my teammate i wouldn't have never been a pj and my son probably wouldn't have never been a pj and you wouldn't be here in this podcast Amen. Everyone has a bad day. And if and when you do have one of those bad days in your pipeline, there's nothing like having somebody that you love and trust and care about right by your side come and pick you up. And for our listeners out there, be ready to be that person who needs to step it up and be there for their teammate when they're having a bad day. Dad, back to you. Any more stories on the OLJ slash NDOC course and pararescue selection? Lots of great stories, lots of great memories. Uh, you, you, 
you have such a great bond with these guys that you go through with. Um, I, I just, I feel, I feel like they are my brothers for life. And we live in all different parts of the country now. We've got guys that are anesthesiologists. We've got guys that are cops. We've got guys that work in insurance. We've got guys that are photographers. I know all that. You're referring to Tony Mancuso, Fred Garcia, and Brian Hayes. And Mike Bogle. And Mike Bogle. And, and, you know, great friends of mine to this day. And we can get together. And we went through this in 1985. So you can do the math. And we are like brothers as soon as we meet. It's like we've never been apart. And these were the guys you went through the pipeline with, correct? Correct. Because I've noticed that um, with my relationships in the pararescue career field, the guys who I went through the pipeline with are the guys that I have bonded with the most. Brandon Smith, Nick Vecchio, John Hamilton. I mean, these guys, I was at Kirtland with um, basic training, indoctrination, and uh, I keep in touch with these guys to this day. I, I cannot remember a week where I did not talk to Smitty or Vecchio. I talked to John last week. Um, talked to him this week too as well. So there's something to be said about getting through selection together and being on that grind together. Same agenda, same goal, everything. Your pipeline guys, I think, are just guys that you'll be with um, and you'll they'll be a part of your life forever. Yeah. You'll go your separate ways. Um, but there's a bond and a connection that you'll always have. Yeah. And as you grow older, you appreciate it even more. When you're going through it, you're just in the grind. Um, once you graduate pararescue school and you go to your teams, you know, you're doing your thing and you're, and you're meeting new guys and whatnot. It's a totally different atmosphere at a team than it is through training. Training, everything is about you and about your teammates. When you go to a team, your teammates have wives, they have kids, they have lives. When they when you finish your work day, guys disperse and they go back to their families. Some guys are still single and they hang out together, but it's a different vibe altogether. So the team that you have through your training is a bond that lasts for a lifetime. Dad, you graduated the OLJ and you went on for the rest of the pararescue pipeline. Um, they call it the pararescue apprentice course now. It's a six-month course. And your second time, um, so when you re-enlisted and went through pararescue, again, you ended up going through the pararescue apprentice course. But what was the course called when you went through um, in 84, 85? the final stint before you get your beret. So we just called it the pipeline. So the pipeline included going to water survival. We went to, to army special forces scuba school down in Key West. We went to jump school, which is at Fort Benning, Georgia, again, army school, went to air force survival school up at, in Washington state. The the Uh, SEER school up there at Spokane. Yeah. SEER school. Yeah. Yeah. Survival school, SEER school. And Um, they didn't call it, uh, when, when you went to Halo school, they didn't call it Halo at the time, did they? So Halo was different when I went through. So Halo actually was not part of the pipeline. So I actually went to my PJ unit, and then from the PJ unit, 
I went to Halo school. So I was not qualified in Halo when I put on my Maroon Beret. Do you remember if you had to be Halo qualified to be mission qualified? To no, where... you did not because I did all kinds of stuff. Um, we, we had a we had a hurricane. Well, I got stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and we had a hurricane right after I got stationed there, and I was out doing search and rescue within three months of the time that I went to my unit, and I had not, I didn't have Halo yet. Roger. So getting back to the pipeline, you you went you went through, um, you did jump school, you did SEER school, and then you went through your final pararescue training where you kind of tie it all in together. Was that in Albuquerque, New Mexico? It was. So so that's the great thing about uh, the continuity of pararescue from my first time to my second time. First time I went through Kirtland Air Force Base, and the second time I went through Kirtland Air Force Base. It's different locations, you know, we had different dormitories, and the schoolhouse is in a different place. Same vibes, though. Same vibes. Same vibes. And that was 19 years later, whenever you re-enlisted to become a pararescue man. Again, obviously you had your beret on, but you had to go through portions of the pipeline. And we'll talk about that a little bit later as he gets through um, the pipeline here. But you get done with the pararescue pipeline, you get your beret, and you get stationed at the 1730th Pararescue Squadron, it was called at the time, and that was at Eglin, which later transitioned and became the 23rd Special Tactics Squadron at Herbert Field. But at the time, it was at Eglin. Can you tell us about what that unit was all about? Yeah, so when we went through pararescue school in 1984-85, we got to actually select where we went on our first assignment but you got to select based on your class rank out of the medical portion of our training okay so the guys that performed the highest in the medical phase of your pipeline had the ability to choose which units that they wanted to go to is that, that what you're saying that's correct so if i remember right ron marshall was our was our highest rank in medical and, and he chose the Philippines. And Tony Mancuso, he, who ended up being an anesthesiologist, he was our second rank, and he chose Okinawa. So I think I was fifth out of 11 guys, so nothing great. But we had one slot to Eglin Air Force Base. I grew up in Ohio. I'm like, I can't wait get to go to the beach. Get me down towards the water. Get me to the beach. Get me to something warm. So I couldn't wait to go to Eglin Air Force Base. If I chose number one, I would have chose Eglin Air Force Base. And one of your teammates at the 1730th uh, was Chief Ziegler. And it's funny because when I was going through the pararescue apprentice course in 2011, I had a partial parachute malfunction. And I hit the ground. I don't think I got a concussion. I know I got my bell rung, but I heard this voice and it said, you all right there, Airborne? And I look up and there's this big old dude with the chew in. And I said, oh yeah, sir, I'm all right. He goes, Hey, where'd you get that 1730th Pararescue Squadron patch? I said, it was my dad's. He goes, oh, you're Maurice's boy. I served with him. And that was Chief Ziegler down that's, at the 308 awesome. uh, Rescue Squadron down at Patrick. So that's it was awesome. really cool to meet him for the first time. Yeah, it's. A, I think um, being a legacy guy like you are, Jason, um, there, there's there's pros and cons to that. Obviously, you're you're judged on a, on a higher curve, but you also have... Uh, some some great inroads that um, come from me just 
being involved in the community and meeting guys um, over the course of my career is it's pretty cool. Well, if I didn't have those, you know, I wouldn't have known about what pararescue was if I didn't have you and, and I didn't have those stories growing up. So I can't thank you enough. And uh, it really was an incredible experience, an incredible opportunity to grow up listening to the stories of these pararescue men that you served with and then actually going in and being able to meet some of them train with some of them go down range with some of them it was a very surreal feeling and obviously much more surreal once you joined and we got to serve together um, so you graduated the course you're stationed at the 1730th pararescue squadron dad what was your your favorite part of being a pj whether or not it's the first time i went through in the 80s or the second time i went through in the 2010s I think one of the wonderful things about being a PJ is the amount of different wonderful things that you have to be good at. It is incredible all the different mission sets that a pararescueman has to do. And it's extremely hard, if not impossible, to be really, really good at all of them. And I just remember one day jumping and the next day working on mountain climbing and the next day working on medical stuff. Jack of all trades. It's just amazing how much you have to be good at all these different things. And if you're not a good jumper, you're going to be a crap show compared to everybody else that goes out of an airplane or a helicopter. So you have to be good at that. you got to be good at all these insertion methods that PJs have to be good at, whether or not you're at, with a PJ team or you're stationed with or, or attaching to a SEAL or a SF unit or whatever it may be. You have to be good. You have to be actually, you have to be great because everybody is going to look at you and judge you on a harder curve when you're with those attached teams. So you've got to be great. I think that was one of my biggest challenges with the pararescue career field as a whole is the fact that you had to maintain efficiency slash proficiency on so many different skills that you didn't necessarily have the time to really become an expert at one thing. And that's also the beauty of being a pararescueman is that you train on all these different skills so that you can bring those skill sets to the battlefield, bring it to another team and attach to that team or bring it to a rescue mission. And I thought that being able to jump one day and dive another day, do mountaineering another day, and then shoot another day was an incredible capability of a pararescueman. But it was also the greatest challenge of a pararescueman was trying to balance all of those skills and being solid at them so that you can save lives. What did you think was your number one skill that you brought to your team, Dad? Well, I agree with you, Jason, that um, it's so unique trying to trying to have excellent capability in all these different skills. Um, bottom line is that we're medics. And all the other things you talk about are ancillary. They're, you have to get in, so you have to insert, so you got to be able to rappel and fast rope and dive and, and, jump. and jump and all that stuff. And those are insertion methods and they're extraction methods. To get to the, the rescuee. To get but to the, the whole patient. point is that you're there because you're a medic and you better be good at being a medic 
And I can't really say that I was an, uh, an awesome medic as it relates to all the different PJs that I was in with. I thought there was some amazing medics, and you are a great medic, and we're a great medic. Was. <laughs> um, I, I, I loved to jump, and when I got to Eglin, we had an NCOIC, and we didn't have combat rescue officers at the, at the time that I, I got there. I was a PJ the first time. We were all enlisted. Um, and I had an NCOIC that was an amazing jumper and he loved to jump and we jumped and we jumped and we jumped all the time and we got really good at it. So I loved to jump and I felt like I got pretty good at that. Uh, the other thing I loved was tactics. We had a couple guys on my team that were, that loved tactics and Eglin Air Force Base has got tremendous amounts of land and it's got a lot of swampy type land. And we did tons of tactical stuff, and I, I gravitated towards that a lot. And I really, really enjoyed that. Now, Dad, you had a, a mission in Ethiopia. Can you tell us about that mission in particular? And how long um, were you a PJ before you got launched on that mission? So the, the, the mission happened in about 1989, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I remember... So I, I, I had been born. Yeah, so you were born in 88... Um, and so I'm still stationed at Eglin Air Force Base. Uh, the mission drops in, in 1989. The reason I remember it is because uh, I went into work, and they they drew us all in, and they said, listen, there's a mission, and here's the guys that are going on it. You get about an hour to two hours. Go home. Tell them you got to go. You can't your tell your family? Them. Yes. They, they wouldn't let you tell your family where you were going? Couldn't tell the family where you were going. And you have to go home, tell them you're gone, and then come on back, and we're loading you, and you're gone. Um, so, you, the, so, so you went home, and you, you told mom. How, how'd that yeah. go? So I, I told your mother that I was I was going to be going, and I, I really don't remember whether or not I even knew where I was going. I probably didn't. Um, told her where we were going, and I remember it was really surreal because you took your first steps as a little boy the day that I left for Ethiopia. So I tell her I got to go. My one-year-old son takes his first steps or close to one-year-old son takes his first steps. And I leave, pack my bags, go back to the unit and we fly out of there on a C5 and we go over to Ethiopia. So we, you know, we went to these different places on the way over there and we get over to, to Ethiopia. We go to, we're, we're there because we had a congressman whose plane went missing. Um, and his name was Mickey Leland, and he was out of Houston, Texas, who was a congressman at that time. And he was over there doing some humanitarian stuff, and uh, he's actually a wonderful human being and a wonderful individual, and I've done some research on him and whatnot because uh, our kind of our lives crossed in some crazy way. Um, but a great human being and uh, really... Um, had a, uh, a heart for helping people in great and dire need. So he was over there and going to these uh, refugee camps and whatnot, and his plane went missing. So we go over there to try to find his plane. And uh, we, uh, there was, I, I'm going to guess there's probably about 12, 15 PJs that went over. We brought our, our helicopter units, our 60s, um, out of Eglin, um, 
we we stationed out of Addis Ababa, which is the capital of Ethiopia, and we fly down into this area um, uh, near the border of Sudan, um, where this refugee camp was that he was supposed to go to. So you guys were on the border of Sudan. I'm assuming that you were heavily armed because of that. We were armed. We you know we we had our our M4s um, at the time. I'm, thinking they were m16s so this was like a humanitarian mission but it was close to somewhat enemy country or country where there could potentially be enemies so you right. guys had to be aware right of that so there threat. was it was a refugee camp because there was a big civil war going on so we go down there and so we have to be armed we go into a search a, a, a whole search type system you know where we're searching for the wreckage um, i went out two or three days Searching for the wreckage on my on my sixty, we didn't find anything, but another sixty found the crash site. They sent a they they sent a guy down, and he said he didn't think there was any survivors. Um, so now it becomes a recovery effort. So they decide to put several of us PJs, um, and our team leader was Bill Sign, who's a Bill Sign. Bill Sign. That's Bill, a big name. He's For a our big listeners name. out there, if you haven't heard of Bill Sign, he's got a great book out there. Um, look him up. Buy his book. Check it out. Incredible human being. Incredible pararescueman. Back to you, Dev. Great, great uh, PJ and a, a great human being. Um, have so much uh, admiration and respect for Bill. Uh, Bill was our team leader. So we had to repel into the site. It was on the side of a mountain. Um, really difficult terrain. So we repelled out of our 60s, got there. I think there was 16, 18 guy, people on this uh, on this aircraft, and um, you know it was just smashed in the side of this mountain. So it was a total recovery effort, but really tough terrain. We repel out, we repel up out above the crash site. And Dad, uh, why'd you guys repel? We were repelled because there was the the side. It was on the side of a mountain. Now, when I say a mountain. I really mean kind of a large hill, and there was it was really, really tropical, uh, lots of trees and, and, and lots of big-time vegetation. On Why this. didn't you guys hoist? Do you know? We were repelled because guys can get out, and we weren't trying to get back up to the aircraft. So we just, we just went out um, on two or three at a time on different repel ropes. Got it. So we repelled. It wasn't a big repel, you know, 20, 30 feet. But when I hit the ground, I was just like, wow, this is really steep. And I was just like trying to brace myself like, okay, I got to I gotta kind of hold on here because this is really steep. And I'm above the crash site. And I just remember it stinking like it was just an amazing amount of smell because of all these dead bodies. Burnt that were bodies. In the, and, yeah. yeah. And so that's the first thing I remember. And I remember how tall... Um, the grass was in this area that we were repelled into. It was probably six foot tall elephant grass. So we get down on the ground and and Bill does an assessment and says, okay, we're going to set up up here. So we set up up there and we have to put up, we got to put ropes down to the crash site because it's that steep. So we all went down on ropes. Now, I don't mean on the side of a cliff, but it was enough of an angle that it wasn't safe to just go down. So we hooked into a rope and we and we kind of used it to guide ourselves down. And we get down to this grass site. Did you guys have extrication equipment or any type of equipment that you were bringing down too, besides I, like your rucksack and all your personal gear? I don't remember a lot of extrication uh, equipment at that time. Um, 
Jaws of Life and things like that were not really part of our, our career field at that time. Was the plane in pieces or was it still intact? So the plane was just, uh, you, you couldn't really, there was different pieces of it, but the main part that I remember that was the, was the tail of the plane was stuck up in this tree, and it was just the tail. So there wasn't any part of the fuselage or anything, but the tail was stuck up in this tree that had been burnt up. And it was surreal seeing the tail of this plane stuck up in this tree. Um, so I go down to this crash site, and uh, we the first thing I remember going down this rope is I saw a arm that was from the elbow down and that's all it was was just an arm of the elbow from the elbow down but the hand was intact and it was just laying there on the ground it was an amputated arm so it was an amputated arm and it wasn't anything close it wasn't anywhere close to anything else and that was the first thing i saw and i'm like okay this is this is real this is real and it stinks to high heaven and it's going to suck here for a few days so we went about figuring out where all these people were and where all these bodies were and then we came up with a system on how to recover the remains um bill as our team leader was more worried uh initially of certainly about ha safety of all of us but then he had to recover what, what was the safety that he was concerned with in particular just the the high angle yeah the high angle was a, a was a real concern to him was making sure that all of us were were safe on the high angle because this was going to take you guys a few days it was going to take it was going to take us days it wasn't going to take us a week and it wasn't going to take us a day Did so you have the supplies that you needed or were you guys going to have to get resupplied so we got resupplied as it related to especially body bags so you, um, no, I think we had our food. We had our food in our rucks and whatnot. Yeah. So we were working on MREs and whatnot. So but you needed more body bags. Well, we need a lot had. of body bags, and it was nasty. Um, uh, the the amount of uh, of blo bloating of these bodies was ridiculous. It was terrible. Um, but but so Bill's worried about the security of the team. He's worried about the safety of the team. And then he's coming up with a concept on how to get all these bodies together and, and how we're going to do this, how long it's going to take and whatnot. So he, he's taking care of all that stuff. And, you know, I was a, I was a young PJ, so, you know, I'm, I'm in the mix on, okay, I'm doing the recovery. I'm pulling these bodies out with, with my teammates and whatnot. And it was just a – it was a super interesting experience, even though it was it – was, it was rough and it was disgusting and whatnot, and it was a terrible tragedy. Um, very, very interesting from my perspective. So you recovered all the bodies. So it, mission it, complete. It took what, us what happened? two to three days. Um, we'd recover a body. Uh, um, we we get them. We get two or three of these bodies um, all lined up, and then a helicopter would come in. We they'd send down uh, the hook from the hoist, and we put these body bags on the hoist, send them up, and they'd take them away. Um, to a, a place that uh, that they had set up kind of as a as a fob. And were you guys concerned at all about uh, being close to the border and having these helicopters coming in and, and any of those rebel forces coming in on your position? I, I can't remember us being too terribly concerned about that. Uh, we, you know, there's a lot of wildlife in the area, and there was, you know... What, I, what kind of wildlife? Uh, especially, we, we got debriefed on, like, uh, or got briefed on baboons. and, and uh, Baboons? Yeah, and so, they, you know, that they could be something that could, that could come in and, and whatnot. So you just keep your... 
keep your guard up and whatnot. So I think we were concerned about that, but we certainly we carried um, our weapons the entire time while while we were over there and doing things. So, Dad, you finished this mission in Ethiopia. You're back at the 1730th Pararescue Squadron, and you ended up getting out. Um, what was your reason for for getting out? Well, I got um, I, I got orders to go to Alaska, and Alaska I think was like a three year tour, and I only had a couple of years of retainability left on my on my enlistment. Um, so they just told you, hey, sweet, you're going to Alaska. Yeah, and that's what they do now. I, I think. I mean, they, they pretty much, you know, when you're in the active duty, you're gonna you're gonna go where the Air Force needs you, and that's what they did then too. Well, at the time, I was, you know. I, didn't like it. I was 250 days gone the last, uh, I mean, the, the, the year you were born. Um, so you were only home a few months. Yeah, I was home for 100 year. days, and I was gone for 250 days. So, um, and, and I didn't like that. Uh, your mother didn't like that. Um, it's, it's a rough way to deal with a family. And some people can do it. Some families can do it. Some can't. Um, so when they gave us orders uh, for Alaska... I talked to your mother and, and whatnot, and we decided to say no because we didn't have the retainability. Um, but when you say no, you cannot re-enlist, so you know you're getting out. So in a couple of years, we knew we would be getting out. And you got out, and you started remodeling homes. Is that correct? Yeah, so when you were... Oh, actually, before I even got married to your mother, I bought this dilapidated mobile home and decided to fix it up. And I didn't know anything about construction, but again, I had a great teammate. And what was his name, Dad? His name was Jerry Thomas. So Jerry Thomas got you into the remodeling world, or what exactly did he do for you? Well, when I bought this remodeling thing, uh, Jerry Thomas was, you know, he, he was like a tech sergeant when I was a senior airman. PJ? Yeah, he's PJ, and uh, a, a great PJ and a great dude. And um, I've seen him at several uh, reunions since then. So I tell Jerry I'm going to buy this mobile home. He's like, I'll help you. And, and Jerry was very handy at a lot of, uh, a lot of things. So Jerry, um, Jerry helps me fix up this dilapidated mobile home uh, before you and your, you, you and, uh, I'm sorry, myself and, and your mother got married. So, again, a teammate helps me get into this, this thing called renovation or remodeling or whatever. So we get this mobile home. That's where, uh, uh, once we got married, that's where we lived. And that's where uh, we lived when you were born. So we moved into this mobile home. And, again, it's because I had a teammate that was sacrificial. And and he didn't ask me to pay him. He did it after work. And he did it because I was a teammate of his. And that is the brotherhood. He believed in you, he took you under his wing, and he taught you the tools of the trade. And you took it from there, and you started remodeling houses. What happened after that? So I bought a, I bought a couple of VA foreclosures, and I fixed those up as a, when I was a PJ. So, you know, I'm doing all these different things, going on all these TDYs, and doing all this training, and start, trying to be a PJ. But I'm also fixing up these houses, so I guess I was a glutton for punishment, but... It was a good time. I was learning a lot of things, and and I had a lot of enthusiasm and wanted to, uh, you know, wanted to learn. So, I uh, decided to to get out, and you know, I got out in May of 1990, and from there I started my business, 
um, my construction business, and I went directly from being a PJ to being a business owner. I didn't work for anybody. I didn't do anything else. I went directly to owning my own business and trying to make a living off that. How did you feel that Pararescue prepared you to be a business owner and to be successful outside of the military? Well, I think that's one of the one of the biggest things I hope that comes out of this podcast is what Pararescue did for me is it gave me confidence in me. I felt like through the training that I had gone through and through the experience I had gone through as a PJ, all I had to do is put my mind to it and I could do it. Now, in retrospect, that was probably a little bit of a failed outlook, um, but not completely. It, you can't just accomplish everything because you believe in yourself. You have to have knowledge and experience to go along with that. And perhaps I didn't have quite as much knowledge and experience as I should have when I went into the building business, but I had tremendous belief in myself that came through all my pararescue training. So I went into in, into construction, and I struggled for two, three years just trying to figure out all the different things that you try to figure out when you're a new business owner. But eventually I got it, and I just had this dogged mentality of I'm going to do this. I've got to do this. I am going to be successful, and that comes from being a PJ. You just you got to believe in yourself, and you go out, and you get things done, and you figure it out. PJ's got to figure it out. There's so many things that you come across as a pararescueman that do not have some kind of way that you were taught that you have to do it. You have to figure it out on your own. You have to improvise. And I love that about pararescue. I, I love the fact that you don't learn everything out of a book. You have to use your brain and improvise and figure things out all the time. There's constantly things that happen to you and, and are scenarios that just require you to think outside the box. And I love that. And fast forward 19 years later, through that remodeling and through that construction, you ended up re-enlisting into the Air Force and becoming a PJ. Can you tell us a little bit about what prompted that, how you got in shape? Talk to us. So I just, in 2008, the entire economy crashed. Uh, and, and being a general contractor, um, housing just went over a cliff so there wasn't a whole heck of a lot to do so all of a sudden I had all this time on my hands and not really working too much um, you had decided to go into the military and and so I had trained you and and you had pushed on out into into basic training and then on to PJ training the person that got you involved with that James Sanchez um, was super saiyan was a he was on the team in front of me going all the way through the pipeline so good friends um Sanch got you back involved with the the unit out of Tucson 306 and he said hey Mo why don't you come on back and I said did you think he was kidding when he said that oh to I you? totally thought he was kidding I'm like you when, when did he say that what do you think 
prompted him to, to offer that. That's was a he great blowing question. smoke or was he dead serious? I, that's, a, that's a great question. Because you know Sanchez, man. And I say, Sanchez is a great dude, man, but you know he, he dreams with the stars. I mean, San, he's, yeah, he's way out Sanchez's there. Sanchez is a dreamer, right? And he's that's a dreamer. What makes him special. And, and I love him. Yeah. I love him for that. But you know what? He You know, no mission's too far and nothing's impossible and that's why he is a great dude great pj and um amen and a wonderful human being uh, he has a great heart so he challenged you he challenged me and i'm just like are you you know you obviously um are not thinking correctly because i'm <laughs> very old and this is well, a young 52, man's game 53 when you said that no 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 i was i was 43 42 43 yeah i was 43 44 um 43 when he said that i think uh 43 44 and you know this is a young man's game I and mean, it's 19 to 25 26 year old guys that are going through and they're you're in the height of your physical capabilities a 44 year old man that's already been through pararescue and has you know had a couple hundred jumps or whatever it, it's not capable like <laughs> young dudes are but he challenged me and and I had enough time to think about it. Uh, and I'm like, you know what? I still have the same pararescue mentality. I still have the mentality of I can do anything I put my mind to. So your mind was there. My mind was there. So I. I was the body. So the body was not pararescue ready. It wasn't even. And I'm not talking in doc pararescue ready. I'm just talking about being a Operation. PJ again. Yeah. yeah, being an operational PJ again. So I. But I challenged myself. I said, okay, let's go out and let's start working. And so, uh, you know, I tightened up the diet and I started working out a couple of times a day and doing a ton of running. Lived in Sedona, Arizona at the time. Lots of hills around, lots of things I could do. And I just I just went out and I just started training. And they didn't make you go through the indoctrination course again, right? Well, no. And he told me up front, he's like, yeah, well, you won't have to go through indoc again because if I had to go through indoc again, uh, that that was too that that was that hill was too far. You already earned that, so yeah. I think it was very reasonable that they let you clep in doc. Right, so yeah, I didn't have to go through in doc. I didn't have to go go up. You didn't go have back. to go through airborne, airborne, scuba, and then to go through seared, and then go through halo. What they were, did you have to to go so, through? So basically, when I decided to go back in, they got me to the unit and they started requalifying me within the team on certain things. And they thought they were going to be able to do that on all of my items. So they, they actually had planned to not even send you through the pararescue pipeline at all, per se. They that's, were just going to do it all in-house. That's right. We were going to, re, we were going to retrain me in, in-house. Well, that, didn't, th- that could not be done based on uh, people that were in the pararescue manning uh, part of the career field. They said, you know what? He's been out so long, he needs to go back through um, the whole PJ course. The, the pararescue apprentice course. Uh, the apprentice course. course. The final course. Right. So, yeah, I had to rehack on. New Mexico. Yeah, I had to go, I had to rehack on all my paramedic, and then I had to rehack on uh, on all the, you know, the medical course at, at PJ school and mountain and tactics and, and air ops and. And what's wild is that I'm at Kirtland Air Force Base about to start the apprentice course, and all of a sudden I get word that I got a new suite mate who's going to be sharing a bathroom with me. Yeah, can you believe this? This is 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 not a a story made for TV. This is an actually happened. So my son is at PJ apprentice course, 
in at Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico, and I have to go to the same course and rehack on it, and at the same time, at the same time, and not only are we at the same time, but they put us in the same dorm, and then not only they put us in the same dorm, but we actually share a bathroom. We didn't share a toothbrush, but we did share the same bathroom. <laughs> We did share the same bathroom. Can you believe that? That's crazy to even think about. But that's what happens. So Man, I, I you're in that. you're in the class in front of me, and I am obviously in the class. Yeah. yeah, and I'm in the class behind you, and we go through the PJ apprentice course one, and you're one class in front of me the whole time. Yeah, I tell you what, man, it was pretty incredible to go to that graduation and have you give me your old beret. And then me go to your graduation a month later and give you my beret. Um, what an honorable experience, Dad. And you know, I just can't thank you enough for introducing me to the pararescue career field because like you said earlier, pararescue made you who you were in a professional environment. Pararescue gave you those values and those morals and taught you how to be a teammate. I can't tell you that's what pararescue did for me too. And I'm humbled by it and I'm forever in debt to the career field for it. Well, I've told uh, I've told several people that I really do believe this, um, and I feel like I've had a fairly successful professional career. Um, uh, but but what I really feel is that Pararescue did a lot more for me than I did for Pararescue, and I really believe that. Um, this is a, a an amazing opportunity for people to go into. Um, it will teach you a lot about yourself. It'll teach you a lot about others, but it will make you the best version of you. And I truly believe that. Well said. There's nothing like the values that Pararescue teaches you in a, in a matter of selflessness and putting your teammates before you. And Dad, you're about to graduate the Pararescue Apprentice course. Um, you put my beret on. I put your beret on at your graduation. Let's talk a little bit about what the differences were between going through pararescue 19 years later and going through pararescue training back in the late 80s and early 90s. What were some of the primary differences that you saw? That's a great question. I get that question often from people that have been through this this experience to to one degree or another. Um, in in the early or the mid 80s when I went through the first time, we were not at war. Um, so subsequently, there wasn't as much of a need for pararescuemen. So, so our manning was down. We, again, we had probably 350 guys. Um, I believe that really put the standards really high uh, to get through. So it was a bear to get through on the physical aspect the first time I went through. They could be highly selective. Because they were they highly were selective, and they smoked our butts. And now we're critically undermanned. So we're we critically undermanned. So when so obviously it's supply and demand no different than in business in in any type of business in the world. It's supply and demand. So we have a greater demand than we have supply right now. So I believe that that it's a bit easier from the physical side to make it through pararescue training. However, the mental grind that you have to endure for two and a half years is more difficult nowadays than it was then. Why um, would you say that? 
Well, I just think that having to stay focused on something that is two and a half years away is a lot harder than having to stay focused on something that's a year or a year and a half away, which is what it was when I went through the first time. And what did you think about the medical demands? Because when you went through the first time, you guys were somewhat EMT intermediate. So you had significantly less medical procedures that you were trained on, medical protocol. And when you went through the second time, you guys were getting trained as EMT, or we were getting trained as EMT paramedics. What yep. was that like for you? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point, Jason. And, and, and the first time we went through, I, it, was, it was a six-week medical course. And it was six months the next time. Six right? time, six months the, the next time. Plus, it was six months for paramedic, and then you had to do the PJ course. So it was more than six months. Um, the six-week course we went through the first time was just, it was just so heavily geared towards trauma, which is what mainly what PJs deal with, right? right? So we didn't learn a lot of the paramedic aspects of, of medical treatment at that time. Um, so we were very focused on trauma and, and whatnot. And I felt, I felt good about my, my medical skills at that time. But in retrospect, when I went through the second time, I realized how, how many holes I had in my medical training the first time through. The second time through, the medical training was phenomenal. I loved it. It was the, the amount of, of detail and capability for a PJ now in a medical field is amazing. They they have such incredible capabilities coming out of PJ school. It's just incredible. And one of the most amazing things about our career field and serving in Afghanistan is that the medications that you use and the medical procedures that you are utilizing downrange are the medical procedures that are getting evaluated stateside and will get implemented five to 10 years later stateside. So administering drugs like ketamine downrange in Afghanistan, it takes six, seven, eight, up to 10 years for the United States to adopt those types of medications, but all of the research that they are utilizing to adopt that medication and decide whether or not that's a medication they wanna bring on to EMS or uh, emergency rooms or any type of regular medicine, they are getting that from the battlefield. So that was something that I really loved about this new capability that Pararescue developed over the years in becoming paramedics and really amping up that um, the intervention capability was the fact that you got to do blood transfusions, interosseous transfusions, um, antibiotic administration. Yeah, just incredible. Yeah, and and again tying this back all the way back to then is um, um, Bill Sign. Bill Sign back in the day. Um, my team leader to go over and do the Ethiopia mission. And then you fast forward and Bill Sign's still involved in the pararescue community and he's still involved. When I went back through, he was an instructor at PJ school. So now he's my team leader in Ethiopia in the late eighties. And now he's an instructor when I go back through in the early 2010s. And he was my instructor too. And he's your instructor too. I get to hear all these stories about him growing up. Yeah, and he's, he a, and he's, and he's a wonderful storyteller and you need to get his book because it's that amazing. His book is called Guardian Angel, by the way, for our listeners out there. Go ahead, Dan. And, and, uh, and Bill was involved in, in getting things um, like plasma and, and really exceptional treatments for, for trauma patients 
trying to keep guys alive from blood loss or whatever um, on the battlefield. So Bill was on the front lines of developing the pararescue career field and amping it up to what it is now. Big time front lines. Um, um, we have so many guys in pararescue that over the years have been on the front lines um, and created our capabilities, whether or not it be um, all of our Rams capability and jumping jumping Zodiac boats out of back of 130s into the ocean so that we could, um, you know, they inflate and then they go off so we can save somebody in the middle of the ocean. Um, when I went through the first time, they were just developing that. And uh, one a, amazing PJ named Bob Holler was on the front lines of that. And uh, Bob was instrumental and probably the leading force in developing our entire Rams capability, and we still use that today. So, Dad, we're past an hour here, so we're coming up on time. Let's move on to you and I serving together and what that experience was like. You graduate the pipeline. You and I are at the 306 Rescue Squadron together. Now, we're limited on what we can do. We can't deploy together. We cannot fly in military aircraft together, but Chief Sanchez had some type of workaround to where we could go to Eloy, Arizona together at Skydive, Arizona, which operated off civilian aircraft, and we could actually jump together. So I think the first TDY that we did was a close quarter combat school. I think it was with uh, the Warrior School, Jeff Prather. Is that what we did? Yeah, we did a, we did a, a cool um, one-week-long um, CQB course over um, in, in Tucson. Foreign yeah. weapons familiarization. We yeah, shot the, the AK seventy four, I mean, the forty seven, the RPK. Yeah, and, and then we're doing CQB together, and, and that was a blast, it, man. It, I mean, we're running as a father and son on the same team on about a five man team that we're running through all this stuff, and we're running together and, and doing this kind of stuff. Uh, it it's kind of surreal looking back on it that we could actually operate, train, and be on the same team together. Uh, it's just amazing, and it's it's one of the greatest memories that I'll ever have. And I had heard from multiple sources that you and I were the first and only father-son um, special operators to serve on the same team at the same time. And I know we didn't put that story out when we were serving together, but apparently that is the case. And as father-son, what our command had told us was we were not allowed to deploy together, go on missions together, or fly in military aircraft together. However, we could do high-angle courses, we could do close-quarter combat courses, and so often the units sent us together on TDYs. And one of my most memorable TDYs, and for our listeners out there that don't know what a TDY is, that's a temporary duty assignment where you leave town to go train. We went on a TDY to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and somehow, some way, they had rented out the abandoned New Mexico State Penitentiary where they filmed the movie The Longest Yard. They had rented it out for a mount, uh, which is military operations, urban terrain, and CQB course. And we were getting trained by former Delta Force operators running and gunning in that abandoned New Mexico State Penitentiary on night vision. We went down to the gas chamber, um, sat in that gas chamber together. Um, what was that like, Dad, to to get to go to that course together and run and gun. Yeah, it's just it was so so surreal. Uh, just being able to be with your your teammates and then look over and see your son. And as a father, 
it doesn't matter how good you are or how capable you are, you're still my son. So as I'm training, I'm still have a little father worry too. How's he doing? What's he up to? Where is he? Is things going well for him? <laughs> and I got to admit the same thing on my part. You know, I'm looking at my dad say, hey, I better turn it up here. I got dad watching, you know, got to be on my game here. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's such a such a unique feeling to be able to do that. Um, so um, I, I doubt very many people are going to get a chance to do something like that. But um, things worked out, and uh, it's it's a memory that you know will be cherished forever. My one of my favorite uh, TYs that I went on with you, Jason, was we went to Alaska together, and we did an avalanche training. That course was a blast, together. man. <laughs> just you and I. It was I. cold. Just you and I. And, you know, we, so we fly from Tucson up to Alaska. Just the two of us. Yeah. Just the two of us. Yeah. And, and we went up there and we did a week's long avalanche training. We did all of our training together. And Stayed in that little ski lodge. It was just Must a, have snowed 10 inches that day. It was crazy. Too. But yeah. so, uh, just so many great things. And you know what? We had great commanders. We had, we had great NCOs that allowed us to do that. And they knew that there was something unique and special going on. And so uh, they need they need a call out, too, that they allowed that kind of thing uh, and they put those kind of things together so that we could have those special bonding memories. Yeah. Really, Sean McBride, really Ricky cool. Guns, Chris Tellsworth, yeah. incredible guys. Yeah, great guys, um, great PJs, great human beings, um, um, good commanders, too, good commanders. Now, Dad... You um you ended up parachuting into a, a tree down at Eloy and uh, it ended up hurting your hip. Is that what happened to you? Well, <laughs> that's certainly one of them. But uh, I actually hurt myself um, when I was in PJ school. So um, did a night jump and uh, it was one was of my a halo jump. Yeah, it was a halo line? jump. Okay. So you know, jumping from ten, twelve, thirteen thousand feet, whatever it is. Uh, it was it was non-equipment, but it was night. We didn't have on MBGs, um, and it was dark as dark that night. Um, no moon, no ambient light. It was out in the desert. Just wasn't a lot going on. Um, so I came in, and um, I just misjudged the ground, and and I hit the ground going way too fast. And it pulled my pulled my right leg out, and, and and it tore the labrum in my hip. So I I I didn't even tell anybody about it. I just kept on rolling, and um and, and yeah, I knew if I told somebody about it, I'd probably get set back. And you know, at my age, I didn't want any part of being set back. So I just so carried toughed on. Toughed it out. So you just tough it out, and and lots of special operators do that. Most special operators do that. You learn to deal with pain. You learn to be able to drive on. That's just part of the deal. And all the way back through the entire history of this great country, we've had we've had soldiers that have gone into battle and have been hurt and keep on driving on, and that's just the way it is. That's just the mentality you got to have. So, you know, I was able to do things, but I was limited, and it hurt. But I was able to carry through. So that's where I hurt myself the first time, and then you know, landing in a tree in Eloy didn't help either. So. Long story short, I ended up um, having to medically retire as a PJ because I had to get a hip replacement. You can't be a PJ with a hip replacement. So um, I got out and um, 
and I was in the reserves as as you were. So you know we were we're doing our other job anyways. And my job actually, I went back into the building business, and so I just went back and and started doing construction full time. So, Dad, you got out of pararescue, your second stint. Tell us a little bit about what you started doing after that. You picked back up on the construction business, and you saw a lot of success. Well, so I've had two jobs basically as my as a as an adult. I've been a PJ, and I've been a general contractor. That's really all I know. That's who I am, and that's what defines me. So, um, I came back to the to the Destin Eglin Air Force Base area and and picked up kind of where I left off for those. 19 years in between my my two stints in the military and um, um, started my business right back up and and got right back into it and uh, I really don't feel like I missed much of a beat so um, I'm busy being a general contractor Um, got plenty of work I'm very grateful for that and uh, that's what I do but pararescue I do not go a day in my life without thinking about pararescue how do you think Pararescue prepared you for the success that you're seeing now as a businessman and a general contractor? That's a great question, Jason. It's really what, what matters most. And when you're listening to the, this podcast, oftentimes you're thinking about going into a special op, be a special operator. But what really special operations does for you is it sets you up for life. Because it it makes you believe in yourself. It gives you fortitude. It gives you the ability to go into things that perhaps are greater than what you think you can do. And you accomplish those things. And it gives you the confidence to believe in yourself and fight through whatever the adversity is. And come out on the other side and be victorious. Thank you for that, Dad. What an absolute honor to have you on the podcast tonight. I just want to thank you for everything, um, all the wisdom that you've given our listeners tonight, all the wisdom that you've given me growing up. Thanks for spending a little time with us tonight, dropping some wisdom and dropping some knowledge. It's truly an honor, Dad. Looking forward to everything that's coming to your future. And for our listeners out there, keep in mind that there was a time where there was absolutely no prep. You are existing and living in a time now where special operations is open to you. There are people that want to see you succeed. The career field is critically undermanned. The time is now. Step up, do what it takes, and join the elite ranks of the special operations community.